Kings chapter 16. Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We thank you for this opportunity to come together and worship you. We ask you to guide and lead as we look at the, the scriptures in front of us and, and show us what you would want us to see through them. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so so far we're, we've, had, we've covered quite a few kings. We've had Saul and then David, Rehoboam and Abijan and Asa. Uh, and we have Jeroboam, Nadab, and we're getting ready to go to Basha. Um, I've got a little graph that I'm going to look over and make sure it's what I want and then probably pass it out next week which shows all the kings, the prophets and puts them all in order and everything. Uh, but I just want to double check it and make sure it's what I want. <laughs> so chapter 16 verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jehu the son of Hananiah, Hananiah against Basha saying, for as much as I exalted you out of the dust and made you prince over my people Israel, and you have walked in the way of Jeroboam and have made my people Israel to sin, to provoke me to anger with their sin, behold, I will take away the prosperity of Basha and the prosperity of his house and will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. Him that died, dies of Basha in the city shall the dogs eat, and him that dies in... In, his field, in the field shall the fowls of the air eat. Now the rest of the acts of Basha and what he did and, and his might, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Basha slept with his fathers and was buried in Tirzah, and Elah his son reigned in his stead. So I want to stop here for just a moment. Uh, if you remember, Basha uh, raised up against uh, and was made king and he's an evil king. And the thing I want to most on this is, is, is God brings judgment even on evil people. Not just Christians, but all people that walk on this world have God's consequences for sin. Now sometimes it seems like God delays those consequences <laughs> for the lost world. But you know, for people who get saved later in their life, they're pretty thankful that God delayed the consequences for their sin because they finally got saved. And that's God's purpose of holding off, holding off. He has just enough to make them know that he's in charge, just enough to know that they're miserable, but not enough to take their lives because he wants them to come to him. Now, many times he, know, you know, he knows whether they are or not, but, you know, but he's every opportunity and yet with us sometimes you know I know that I can't do hardly anything without God's being in my face about it and 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 disciplining me for doing something stupid and then I look around and these people keep doing stupid things and don't seem to be punished and and yet I know that God will punish them Bash is an evil king and God sends a prophet to him and says you know hey I exalted you you were nothing, and I brought you into being king, and I made you the prince, and, I made, and you made the people to sin. Now, this is pretty bad, you know. He's, he's not just responsible for himself, and this is the thing when people are leaders, they're not just responsible for themselves. They're also responsible for everybody that they lead. And that's true of whether you're the king or president or governor or representative or senator, uh, mayor, father, mother. We are responsible for our, how we raise our kids. And God gives us the opportunity to redeem 
and bounce back. When we repent and we turn to him and we, we, come, we come full circle, God will redeem the, the lost years and bring back, just as you were saying, bring back the relationship, bring back the, the people into their fellowship. We just have to stay faithful. And it's hard sometimes when you look and it just seems like things are taking forever <laughs> to, to be fixed. And, you know, just be patient. God says, I will restore. I will restore the years that the, the locusts consumed. And this is so important. Basha doesn't turn, so he's going to be judged completely. And it says, you know, behold, I will take away the prosperity, posterity of Basha and the posterity of his house. He's going to kill of his all of his line and this is something that he had done already uh, you know to Jeroboam's house now his house is going to be destroyed and this is what we need to be aware of and it says and we see this we've read this before he that dies in the field the dogs will eat and he that dies in the in the uh, 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 he that dies in the city the dogs will eat and he that dies in the fields the birds will the air will eat in other words, they're not going to even get proper burials. And this is, you know, this is to a people that burial was important. The Jews had this idea that if you weren't buried, then your soul would not be released to go to, to the afterlife. Uh, now what happened to it, I don't know, but they just had this belief that you had to be buried. You could not be cremated, you could not... And you had to be buried within a certain period of time or your soul was locked in a body. And they had some really strange beliefs. And so this statement is really going to hit them hard. Your, your children, your, your descendants, and you are not going to get to be buried. And this is a big deal to them. And this is a big controversy out in, even in today's world amongst different religions. You know, can we be cremated? You know, and as far as I'm concerned, yes, it doesn't matter because God is God. He can, find my, he can find my body to put it back together. And, you know, it's not a problem because he's still going to, if I'm buried, he still has to find my body and put it back together because it gets consumed by the worms. They get consumed by the birds, which get consumed by everything else. So the body is going to be decomposed and the parts of it are going to be used anyway. So just burying it or burning it is not going to be a big deal. God can still find all the component parts to give us that body back. And besides which, he's just going to give us a new body anyway. So it really doesn't matter. Um, but for them, it's a big deal. They do not believe in being, being burnt. Then they believe that you have to be buried. This is why it was a big deal when Saul's body was taken and, and they put him up on a wall that the people went in three and get him buried and his, and his son's buried so they could have their proper burial and, and be in the spirit released. And so th these guys that are dying in this, in this book and God's saying, you're not even going to be buried. To them, you know, to us it's like, okay, so you're not going to get buried. What, you know, what's the big deal? But for them, this is a big deal. Because if they don't get properly buried, then the afterlife is, is not there for them. Uh, and so this is why this is a big deal. Second time we've read it in this book. Um, so it's a really big deal. And then it says, Are not the rest of the acts of Basha and what he did and his might, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel? And we do not have that book. It's, you know, oftentimes in this it refers to books we don't have. Uh, now when we've got the kings, Chronicles of the Kings of Judah, they may or may not be part of Chronicle, the two books of Chronicles that we have. I don't think they are because these are the big full books 
They give them the entire life of what they do. He did this on this day. He met with this people. He met with this one. All the X. All right. Long, long books. There were, you know, stuff in a library that nobody ever read. All right. Uh, because they were the details. You know, only ones that would. Huh? Years and years. King would have their own book. So if King reigned for 40 years, he'd probably have more than one book. You know, but every day, who he met with, you know, what was ordered. What kind of the history for them and it gives them where's what's happened and they could look back and see where they've gone and who who was who got what and who had done what uh, but they were just journals and that's why every once in a while you'll say and so and so was the scribe well that scribe was responsible for writing down their entire chronicle of their life and you know their idea was someday someday somebody might be interested in them and I guess there's been historians over the years that might have been interesting and if we've ever were to find these these journals, you know, in a in a park, that would be of great interest to some archaeologist uh, out there to find out what had happened in those days, and and I'm sure they're full of great information that would be, you know, very useful to somebody to understand their day. In their day, nobody wanted to read it, you know, so usually. <laughs> huh? Yeah, you know, like the like yeah, kind of like the presidents who write their write their day-to-day -day, you know memoirs of everything they've ever done, and nobody, very few people are ever interested in you know, and some biographer will take bits and pieces of their story, which is first first Kings, second Kings, uh, first Chronicles, and second Chronicles. Bits and pieces of their stories were probably pulled out of these chronicles and put into something that people have a little bit of interest in. Um, so we have there, and then it says Basha died. <laughs> and he was buried in Tirzah, and that is the capital of Israel at this point in time. It's in, it's in the area that we now call Samaria, uh, and they're going to call Samaria later on. Uh, so he's buried there. And his son Elah starts reigning. All right, verse 7. And also by the hand of the prophet Ehu, the son of Han Hanani came the word of the Lord against Basha, against his house, even for all the evil that he did in the sight of the Lord in provoking him to anger with the work of his hands in being like the house of Jeroboam and because he killed him. <laughs> so this poor prophet ends up dead. <laughs> so many prophets end up dead. And I don't know if you really think about this, but the prophets went up and God sometimes told them to say some very hard things against the kings and many times their lives were forfeit we look at Isaiah and Isaiah is a pretty famous prophet we've done reading his whole book and history tells us that he died by being stuck and cut it and he's one that has a great reputation had good but there just got to be he said too much Jeremiah when Jeremiah keeps being thrown into prison keeps being thrown into cisterns you know every time he's told to speak to the kings it's bad news and they they throw him into something. The, when it's good, he gets thrown into a dungeon. If it's not, he gets thrown into a muddy cistern uh, and gets threatened with his life. Many of the prophets get threatened over and over again. And, you know, it's kind of an amazing thing. God expects his children to be willing to stand up and speak for him regardless of what the consequences might be. 
And we read in Acts on Sunday night that the disciples were praying for the strength to be able to continue against the threats of the Sanhedrin and the priests who kept threatening them to beat them and to kill them and later on in the story will actually do so. And this is the thing about it. Jesus told the scribes and Pharisees, you've killed the prophets. Over and over again, you killed prophets. And some of the prophets we don't really know about because they died too quickly and to make anything. We are fortunate in our day and age to live in America where we don't die for our faith yet. There are many places in this world where people die or, are, or at the least are imprisoned for speaking for God. We are fortunate, and, but it is changing. It is changing, and it's going to keep changing more, and it will start weeding out those who really aren't followers of God because when it becomes a dangerous thing to be a Christian, we'll have to take a stand and be ready to make that stand. Old statement that used to be really famous back in the 70s and 80s is, if you were arrested for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? And you know, I know a lot of people that say they're Christians, and you look at their life and go, wow, you know, I wonder if you would be convicted. I hope that there's enough evidence to convict me, and I know I've got a whole uh, seven years worth on the internet that would convict me in a heartbeat, uh, but I hope there's more than just that people know because I speak about Jesus a lot you know and that is a good question for us to consider is my life something that people know that I'm a Christian because these prophets were bold and I'm sure that they were quaking in their boots standing in front of the or sandals in their case standing in front of the kings you know having to say some of the things like they had to say Basha your whole family is going to die this is a man that doesn't honor God at all. And the man of God comes and says, You're, you and your whole family are going to die. That is a message that would be tough. Jonah preaches a message to Nineveh, Israel's enemy, and says, in 40 days you're going to be destroyed. He's preaching to a people that don't even believe in the God that he's talking about. And yet his message brought them to repentance. You know, and this is the thing about it. We never know what our words in God's power is going to do. Sometimes people get totally turned around. If you've ever witnessed to somebody and you're going, I'm sure this person will never change, and all of a sudden, almost instantaneously, they're changed in listening. Then you talk, and then you talk to somebody you think is going to listen, and they, they just about take your head off. You know, it's an amazing thing because we don't know, and this is why God us to tell everybody. We don't know the people that are going to respond and who is not going to respond. So our job is simply to tell. Share the gospel. Share it to people who don't seem to think, you know, think it's going to change. Family members who just aren't listening to us. Every once in a while we need to share with them. You know, our friends you know, that we are afraid to lose if we tell them about gospel. You know, the biker that we see walking down the street that looks so tough, you know. It's pretty amazing sometimes if, if we just share with people the response we get. Some of the greatest responses I've gotten are from these guys that look like they're straight out of the prison and, you know, and rough and tough, and they'll just break down so often, you know, because they want to know that somebody cares about them. People want to know that they're cared for. 
And the message that God loves them, spoken with that loving attitude, can break hearts and break people's resistance. And then we show them that we love them just by our attitudes, not being critical. And this is where grace comes in, where we give people grace. Not, just, not because they're saved or not saved, we just give them grace. We give them the message and they stand or fall before God. This is the great thing about our message. I don't have to judge nobody. I just have to tell them, God says you're a sinner. They know they're a sinner. I don't have to get into the sins they've done. I don't have... You need him. And if you really want to soften it, you want to be careful about softening it too much, but if somebody's getting irate about it, you know, you're a sinner, but so am I. You know, and let them know that we're a sinner. Because sometimes they look at us Christians and you guys think you're so perfect and so good. No, I'm a, I'm a sinner just like everybody else. God lives in me and he, and he has made me perfect in his sight, but I am still a sinner. And we have to be able to say that knowing that we mean it. You know, because just to say, because I've heard people say, well, I'm a sinner too. But, you know, they say it in such a way like, well, you sure don't sound like you believe that you're a sinner. You sound like you still think you're better. And that will never reach somebody. When we understand that I am a sinner and everyone is a sinner deserving hell without Jesus Christ, then we can reach people. And they'll feel that love that's toward them because I know that we're not putting them down. We're not putting ourselves up. Yes, we're Christians. Yes, we've got God blessing us. Yes, we've got great blessings. But we're still no better than the lost person other than the fact that we're have Jesus Christ living in us and we're going to heaven because of that. But other than that, we're not any better. And we need to understand when we preach to people, teach people, it is just that. God loves you so much. He died for you. you know, and people are looking for that kind of love. Looking for the love of somebody who's not judging them that was willing to lay down their life. Sometimes God asks us to lay down our life. Maybe not literally, but how many times have you not done something that you wanted to do to try to help somebody else? Whether it's a loved one, a, a family member, or just somebody you're witnessing to. You know, don't really have time for this, but I'm going to make time because I think God wants me to make time. And lay down what you want to do. It's part of submission, and it's very important in the way we live for God, that we reach out and touch people and help them, even though when it doesn't make any sense, driving hours just to, to help out. In your case, you want to, but, but, you know, but just sometimes that's what it means. I had this plan, but God is wanting me to help this person and reach out and, and help them. And you never know where that help is going to, to turn to. And so we look at this, and all of this stuff that's going on, this, this prophet goes and gives a hard message, pays a price. Verse 8, And in the 26th year of Asa, the king of Judah, began Elah, the son of Baasha, to reign over Israel in Tirzah two years. And his servant Zimri, captain of half his chariots, conspired against him as he was in Tirzah, drinking himself drunk in the house of Arza, steward of his house in Tirzah. And Zimri went in and smote him and killed him on the 27th year of Asa, king of Judah, and reigned in his stead. So because of Basha's bad behavior, he dies. 
The prophecy was that your whole family is going to die and his son starts raining and gets to reign for two years. And, uh, you know, and you can see how wonderful he is. Uh, he spends his time drinking himself drunk. All right? Uh, wonderful king. When your king is a drunkard, you're in trouble. Uh, because we all know what happens to drunkards. They sleep the most of the morning the next day, and then they, he might get up for a couple hours to do some kingly business, and then he's back drinking himself drunk and starting all over again. That is not the way you want your leader to be. You don't want a drunk leader. And it says here that he drunk, uh, that he was there drinking himself drunk. So he was doing this on purpose. I mean, this guy either thought he had the privilege or literally just didn't care. Uh, couldn't handle the pressures of being king and looked to be, be drunk or just thought he had the right to do what he, what he wanted either side doesn't tell us much about him because we just have uh, three verses about him. He gets drained for two years. He, he's a, he's uh, drinking all the time. And Zimri conspires against him. Probably looks at him and says, I'm tired of a drunk king. Uh, and a, or a weak king. Maybe he knew about the, about the prophecy of this, but I think he just kind of was, you know, I've got... Here, the guy who's in charge of me is, is, is always drunk. I, and I'm the, I have a command of half of the chariots. I'm, the, I'm one of the chief commanders. I could, I could do this job better than he does. And decides, decides to strike him dead. And so we have three verses that give us this whole life history of Elah. <laughs> um, you know, and I kind, of, I kind of think it's sad in one sense. You know, when we look at some of these people in these verses, in two and three verses, five verses, their entire life. They, they, they did this, they, they came to power, and they were killed because of the, how bad they were. And it doesn't even say he was evil or anything. It just says he was drunk. All right? Uh, which is evil in and of itself if you're trying to rule the people. Uh, so here we go now, verse 11. And it came to pass... But when he began to reign, as soon as he sat on the throne, that he slew all the house of Bahasha, and he left not one that peed on the wall, neither of his kinfolk nor his friends. Thus did Zimri destroy all the house of Basha according to the word of the Lord, which he had spoke against Basha by Jehu the prophet. And for all the sins of Basha and the sins of Eli his son, by which they had sinned and by which they had made Israel a sin, in provoking the Lord God of Israel to anger with their vanities. Now the rest of the acts of Elah and all that he did, are they not written into the chronicles of the, of the kings of Israel? All right, so he comes to power, and the first thing he does, kills all the descendants of Basha. Yeah, all the males. All males. Yeah, it's... Um, it's little well it says a little stronger word but I try to clean it up for the yeah. for the reading out loud. <laughs> uh, it is the word is it, that they use is very vulgar. Yeah. Uh, but basically it all means you know a lot of times the newer translations clean it up completely and said he cleans up all the male uh, kills all the males. Yeah, uh, but the older versions and the word in the in the Hebrew is just that. You know uh, it's a very strong <laughs> Very strong, almost vulgar word, but it is very clear on what it means. Uh, he's, they kill all the males of his family. Uh, 
And then it says, neither his kinsfolk nor his friends. So he, he didn't just kill all of, his, all of his children. He killed all of his descendants. Anybody who was in that line that was still alive, grandparents, aunts, uncles, cousins. And, and, then, he, and then he also killed any of uh, Basha's and Ehu's f friends. This man is being really evil in the way he comes in. I mean, he's not just wiping out the royal line. He's wiping out anybody who might like the royal line. And if you kind of remember, when David came to power, there were battles between him and the, and the family of Saul because David did not go through and destroy all of Saul's descendants, which caused him problems at times. So in one sense, it is very common, especially on a dynasty change, to wipe out all the previous dynasties so that nobody comes up and says, well, I am the rightful king of this land and cause problems, but you, you don't kill all their friends. Uh, so Zimri is being very violent, but he is, he is a commander. He's a, he's a military man, so he's used to killing. And so he says, fine, I'm just going to kill Elah, all of his family, all of Bash's family, all of their aunts and you know, or uncles and, and cousins. And by the way, if he's got any friends, I'm going to kill them too. Anybody at all that's going to stand up and say Elah's family should be getting in this position, he kills them. Now, he doesn't kill all of his people, but he knows he's killed enough people that nobody's going to stand up because there's nobody to call for. He's killed the entire gen. And we're going to see it various times when even in, within the family sometimes, they will try to kill all of their brothers so that it's just them and their family so that nobody in their generation stands up to challenge them. Uh, and then there's a couple of times where we see God protects the next, gener the next king. Uh, in this case, Zimri is fulfilling the prophecy that all of his prosperity, uh, pro all of his descendants will be destroyed. Zimri is fulfilling that, that uh, promise, that prophecy. And it says that he destroyed all of Bash's house according to the word for all the sins of Bash and the sins of Elah by which they had sinned and by which they had made Israel to sin, provoking the Lord of Israel to anger for, with their vanities, their emptiness. And this is the sad thing. Without God, life is vanity. And those of us who have been there, we know that life is totally vain. It's empty. It's worthless without God. And no matter what we try to fill that emptiness with, it doesn't work. And Basha and his son Ehu were bringing the whole nation into emptiness. And when you have nothing but emptiness in your life, there's nothing but despair and despondency. And he's bringing the entire nation to that place without God. But Jeroboam's been doing that, and, and we had Jeroboam and Nadad and Basha, and now, now Jehu, they're all bringing their nation into total vanity. And it's really where our nation and the world is going to in our day and age. People are going further and further away from God. They're getting more and more vicious, and we're seeing it in the news all the time. Everything is setting people off to riot in the streets. And we're seeing mob rule and vigilante justice trying to be demanded. And it's so scary when we look at it and see 
how far down we are and how far we are away from God. God instituted judges. God instituted punishment for those that are, that are uh, doing evil after the case had been presented to the judges. And now we're getting to people going, well, this person demand, you know, we demand justice. You know, think about the old cowboy movies, lynch mobs. You know, you immediately, somebody may set somebody up and you're out, and they're out there to hang the person who got set up. And then you find out that they weren't the, the one that did it after the fact, you know, after you've hung them, you find out that they didn't do it. And it's like, it's too late. And we're, we're in that mode in our world right now. And our country's going in on that road fast to totally get away from God and vigilante justice and mob rule out there and it's a scary world to be looking at and yet it's where we're at and God has all things that are going to work out he's got a plan and it may be to make the United States not a nation because that's where we seem to be heading or at least not the powerhouse that we have been and it all fits into the end times because all nations are going to go against Israel in the end times so America cannot continue being a, a Christian country that generally follows God's word and supports Israel because otherwise something else would have to happen and it is possible that something else could happen I mean they could drop a nuclear bomb on, you know bombs on on America clear it out but it looks like we're headed down the wrong path and we are not we definitely are no longer a Christian nation uh, the way we're going and we may not be a top-rate nation very long because God is moving against this country and we have vanity. It's amazing when you talk to people how empty they are. Yeah. You know, there, there's so many people that are just plain empty. If it wasn't for their drugs, their alcohol, their, 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 all the idols that they follow, whatever that idol is, because drugs and alcohol are technically an idol. People will sell everything they have for those. People will sell everything they have for their work, their, you know, their, their hobby. That people have idols everywhere. And they're just so much emptiness. And to know that God wants to come in and fill them breaks my heart when I talk to them. And they don't listen. And they're not happy and they just don't understand. And they don't understand how we can be happy. It's an amazing thing when we have Christ in us and we have joy and we have peace that passes understanding and people look at us and going, there must be something, you're, something, you know, I've even had people ask me, what drug are you taking? Because I want it. Well, let me tell you, it's this drug. <laughs> you know, and, you know and, and there's no side effects, there's no after effects, and it doesn't cost anything. You know, and you, and you, and you really get to share with them because they, people are so empty and this is what God says. They were following the vanities. The vanities that were out there. And total emptiness. Verse 15. In the 27th year of Asa, king of Judah, did Zimri reign seven days in Tirzah, and the people were encamped against Gibbethon, which belonged to the Philistines. And the people that encamped heard say, Zimri has conspired and hath slain the king whereof all Israel made Omri the captain of the, the host, king over Israel that day in the camp. And Omri went up from Gibeon and all Israel with him and they besieged Tirzah. And it came to pass when Zimri saw that the city was taken that he went into the palace of the king's house and burnt the king's house over him with fire and died. 
For all his sins which he sinned in doing evil in the sight of the Lord, in walking in the ways of Jeroboam, and in the sin which he did to make Israel sin. Now the rest of the acts of Zimri and his treason that he wrought, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel? Now Zimri has a really, really long reign. He has more pages, he has more, pa more sentences and, and verses than Jehu. <laughs> But he reigns uh, for a very short seven days. Um, so it's amazing when God uses somebody to bring judgment on somebody or something, that does not mean they get away with what they've done. Zimri was being very vicious in what he did, and God brought judgment upon him and knew where he was going to go. He knew that he wasn't going to bring people to God. So it says, the people were out to do battle against the Philistines, and then they heard that Zimri had, had conspired, and all the people decided to get Omri king. And Omri is just another captain. Right? Zimri was captain of half the chariots. Omri is apparently general, you know, general of the people getting ready to go to battle. They heard what Zimri did. You know, and it's kind of an interesting thing. Sometimes people are almost glad that somebody got what they did, but they don't like it when it's you know when somebody takes action against them in many cases. And I think this is what's reacting. They go, "Okay, do we really want Zimri to be our king? He rebelled against his king. What kind of king will he be?" And we see in history that that usually happens when somebody rebels against the king and sets themselves up the people don't usually accept them. Now, it's not a true 100% of the time because we've seen many times where somebody will kill off the royal house and they'll start, they'll start reigning. Basha did it. <laughs> Kills off the royal house and he, he takes over. But Zimri's not going to get away with it for whatever reason. And I think part of it is because of how vicious he was. Because God went to Babylon and said, you, are, you guys are going to be judged because of how you were used to take and punish my people, but you went too far. And this is what God will oftentimes say. You were used to punish, but you went too far, and you are now going to pay for how far you went. And Zimri is going to pay with his life for how far he went. And actually, he commits suicide, which is what, we, what it describes here. Uh, they made Omri... And instead of going to fight the Philistines, they go to Tizra to go take the throne, go conquer the palace. And Zimri, when he saw the city was taken, he went into the king's palace, set it on fire so that the fire over him and he died. So he committed suicide by burning down the palace around him. What a horrible way to die. I, I would think that a general would find a little nicer way to die. But he's also bringing the most damage that he can to the next king. He's destroying the palace. And, uh, you know, so he, even in his death, he has a vindictive spirit. All right? I'm going to die, but I'm going to make sure that he can't live in the palace because I'm taking, I'm taking the palace with me. And I've, you know, it's, I can't understand that mindset, but yet I've seen it over and over. I may not get what I'm going to want, but I'm going to take as many people down with me as I possibly can. And we see this in corrupt governments and everything where somebody's been really bad and they're, gonna, and they're not going to be the fall guy. 
they're going to take everybody down in the entire government with them. And probably rightfully so, because we don't want a corrupt government, but, but we see this over and over. Yeah, I've been, I've been the henchman, but I'm going to take everybody, because I know a lot, I'm going to take everybody. And in this case, Zimri says, fine, I've lost, I'm not going to be king. He's not, he, did, he, did, he, came, he came to take the city back, he's not getting the palace. Now, I don't know how great the palace was, because we we're not told, but he burns the palace down around him. And, and so this is the life of Zimri. Seven days as king. Um, and then it says the rest of his, his works are written down. I don't know how, much, how many works were in that book for seven days, but he, he had seven days worth of <laughs> chronicles in the book. Verse 21. Then were the people of Israel divided into two parts. Half of the people followed Tibni, the son of Ginal, to make him king, and half followed Amri. So now we've got a civil war ruin here. Uh, but the people that followed Amri prevailed against the people that followed Timni, the son of Ginnath, so that Timni died and Amni reigned. And on the 31st year of Asa, king of Judah, began Amri to reign over Israel 12 years. Six reigned he in Tizra, and he, brought, and he bought the hill of Samaria of Shimar, for two talents of silver, and built on that hill, and called the name of the city which he built after the name of Shimmer, owner of the hill Samaria. So we see here that um, it took them four years to get past this civil war that had been developed, because it says that uh, Asa took power on the 27th year, and it's the 31st year that they finally get Omri <laughs> reigning. So they have a four-year period of civil war. While these two battle out on who's going to, which general is going to be king, because one general is, uh, uh, one, the general of the chariots is dead, Zimri, uh, and uh, Omri's raised up, and this other guy comes up and says, well, I ought to be king. You know, and it's an amazing thing when power gets broken up, battles happen. Even in the police, in the world of the police, they don't like it when, when a kingpin of the crime syndicates dies or gets overthrown because a power vacuum is, comes and there's almost kind of, there's a somewhat peace. They know, they know the guy. They know what they're going to do. They're, they're not battling, but when he dies, murders kick in and because people are battling and fighting each other for territory and they don't like it. You know, they don't like having one kingpin, but they also don't like the chaos that follows. The wars that happen when kings and, and countries change and there's a toppling up of their, their business and of, the, of the, a monarchy or the government and the chaos that follows. And usually because the world is evil, what follows is almost always worse than what was brought, brought down. And we see this over and over. The United States has played this game, trying to topple regimes and end up getting worse regimes. Russia, all these countries that do it, they all, they all do it. They always try to input and get control of some other place by toppling their governments. And those governments are almost always worse than what follows. Every once in a while you get one that's a good government, but they usually always are worse. And this is the way we're going to follow. And all of these kings of Israel, they keep getting worse. <laughs> 
They only have one king that's part good, and he ends evil. All their kings are evil in Israel. And so we see here they're, they're going to battle for four years uh, over this period of time. And Omni is going to reign for six years in tier, uh, reign over Israel for 12 years total, and six of them in the capital, in the capital of Tizra. Uh, and it says here that he bought the hill of Samaria. If you remember in, when Jesus was talking to the woman of Samaria, she lived in the capital. And she said, our people say that we worship on this hill, the hill where Samaria is. Why? Because they had all their idol worship and everything. And by the time she's around, they're, supposed to, they're supposedly worshiping God again. But they still have this reputation of, we worship in Samaria, you guys say we're supposed to worship in Jerusalem. And there's always been that, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, even in Jesus' day when they've been reunited, still have a, a break. Kind of like in America where we have the north and the south, which isn't really bad, but there is still, especially if you're in the deep south, there is still a lot of animosity toward the federal government and everything. Uh, that's what you have going on that, that was going on in Jesus' day, that animosity. You guys are saying that Jerusalem is all the important. You know, this has been our city. We've been here for a long time. Matter of fact, you guys went into captivity. We stayed in our city, and, we, and, and, we, and our city's been with us for all this time, and you weren't there in Jerusalem. You know, and she's got all these things going on. He buys this property and builds uh, the city of Samaria and calls that city Samaria. He's going to move from Tizra to Samaria, and Samaria will be where that uh, capital is going to be from that point, point forward all the way on. Uh, even though it doesn't become the capital, it's still a chief city. So these are the things that are happening. It's kind of, as we get in there, we see the history. You know, and this is why I'm bringing in the Samaritan woman. This is where that story starts at. And over time, it becomes the center of worship for them. Uh, for all their idols, but later on when they go into captivity, it'll be where God is worshipped during the captivity of the, of the southern kingdom. Not perfectly, uh, and never completely. The Jews will look down on the Samaritans because while they're away, they interbreed with the Gentiles. So as far as the Jews are concerned, Samaritans are half-breeds. They're not true Jews. They've got Jewish blood in them, but they're not true Jews by their, by their standards, which turns out. And when Ezra comes back and Nehemiah come back, they won't even let the Samaritans help them rebuild Jerusalem. When they ask you, they go, no, you guys can't. You're not, you're not pure. And that causes a rift between them even deeper. And this is what ends up happening if we do not show grace and mercy to one another and to the lost world, a rift gets developed. And we've all heard it. I don't want to go to those, those Christians. They're a bunch of hypocrites. They don't, you know, all they want to do is see me be good. And, and that is a sad thing. And unfortunately, fairly true that that's the way a lot of people, a lot of Christians treat the lost world. Well, if you get right, then we'll, we can fellowship. But until you're right, you know, we can't do that. We cannot put up the rules and God's and, and, and put a separation between us because we don't deserve what we've got and we need to be able to show grace. 
And this is why grace is so important. Because nobody deserves grace, including us. And this is the beauty of it. And I've said it so many times, because I've heard it so many Well, they don't deserve grace. Of course they don't deserve grace. It wouldn't be grace if they deserved it. I don't deserve grace. <laughs> you know, I don't deserve grace. You don't deserve grace. The lost world does not deserve grace. But God gives grace anyway. And this is the beauty. If we start treating the lost world with graciousness and God's mercy, it's going to be a lot easier to reach them. If I'm trying to say, and believe me, I've heard so many Christians say, well, you know what? They start getting right, then I'll talk to them. They don't need anybody to talk to them when they're starting to do things right. They're not going to listen to you at that point because they're going to think I'm doing good things. It's much easier to talk to them when they are in the midst of their sin because they know at that point that they're sinning. But how many of you have ever talked to somebody who seems to be putting their life together? They've given up alcohol. They've given up drugs. They've given up their running around. They might even be popping into church once or twice a year. And they're going, I'm, I'm pretty good. I'm pretty good. God, God, God must like me now. Well, not any more than he did when he loved you when he died for you, but you, know, uh, but you understand what I'm saying. I don't, I don't want people to start getting good. I like talking to sinners that know that they're sinners. And this is what's going on in this world, that we've got to be careful about this. We want to reach people that are lost, that know they're lost, because that's the first part of getting somebody saved. Until they recognize that they are a sinner, they won't get saved. Because what do you, and I've heard it, I have nothing to get saved from. Well, I think you do, and... You know, sometimes our first job, and some people are real easy. They know they're a sinner. They're fun to talk to because they know. Now, they may not accept Jesus, but at least they know they're a sinner. And that's the first thing that we have to understand is we are sinners that deserve help. And then we can come in with the fact that Jesus died for them so that they could be forgiven. And once they're then they can start having their sin lifted off them and they can start turning to God and walking in the peace that passes understanding, knowing that God's spirit lives in them and is able to change them. And it's a beautiful thing that happens when, when that happens. Now this mountain, I didn't even mention this, but this mountain that he bought, he bought for, for two talents of silver, approximately $3,300. So pretty cheap for, for a town that's going to be, be your, your city. But back then, $3,300 is a lot of money. <laughs> All right? So he spent a lot of money to buy this piece of property that is going to be the capital of Samaria. Uh, but we look at this and see what he did. And Omri is looking to the future. He's looking to the future. He says, I want to build a city. And there are a lot of kings that want to build cities, mostly in their own recognition with their own name, their own touch. Uh, Nero wanted to rebuild Rome which is why he burnt down Rome and then blamed the Christians because the people didn't like the fact that he burnt it down. So he blamed the Christians and they persecuted the Christians. But Nero's goal was to, to rebuild Rome in his image. And what, you know, his, his, his name on everything, not, not all of his dads and grandparents and all the other Caesars, he wanted his name recognized on an old city. Omri is a little different. He just buys a new city and builds a new city. 
and puts his name on it. But you know, this is the way the world looks at it. So many things, they want to have recognition. Because if you don't have the hope of God in your life, knowing that he has the eternity in hand, all you can do is hope to, to get a name out there that people will remember somehow, some way in the future. Which is why so many of these wealthy people build buildings and put their name on it and pay for buildings and colleges and stuff so that their name can be known and go, in, go into eternity, you know, until, at least until the building's for a new building to go in its place. But, you know, it, this is what people are looking for. How can people get to know me? And the sad thing is, if it, and, and uh, Solomon told us, life is short. You die, and within a generation or two, you're forgotten. Your kids are going to remember you, hopefully. Your grandkids, maybe. Your great-grandkids, possibly, but not necessarily. Because how many of us can name our great our, our great grandparents or our great great grandparents or our grandparents four or five generations back now I can because I've done a little bit of research on my dad's side I can name them back about 12 generations not off the top of my head and I don't know any of them I just know their names but even if you think about famous people let's look at somebody George Washington famous in America how many of us know very many stories about George Washington? He's not taught in school anymore. Very few people know any of his stories. Those that are over 50 or 60 know more about his stories than, than the younger generation. But there are all kinds of stories about him. Let's pick somebody a little less famous. Thomas Jefferson, Benjamin Franklin. What do we know about these people? You know, we can come a lot closer. We can come a lot closer to, you know, closer. Abraham Lincoln, you know, uh, President Eisenhower, you know, and some of these presidents that we don't know anything about who were famous in their day, we may know their name, and that's about all we know about them. It doesn't take long for somebody to be forgotten. You know, go back even further, Joan of Arc, who knows anything about Joan of Arc? You know, some people know a little bit about her. You know, uh, but we can keep going back and say, who knows much about these people? Because over time, their stories fall away. And the interest that people have in them fall away. We cannot put our life on the temporal basis. Everything we do for this world will rust, fall away, decay. Even if we got somehow, we got very famous and, we're no, and our name's known thousands of years from now, people still aren't going to know us, really. Only what's done for Christ will last for eternity, and then we get to claim it for all of eternity at a time when nobody know, will ever forget. And everything we have up there will be rewarded for. And the greatest thing we're sending ahead of us is souls. I can tell you one thing for sure. Everybody that you've led to the Lord is going to be very happy that you were alive and that you're in heaven, and I think a lot of them are going to come and say thank you. Even the ones that you don't even know that you had an input in their life will come and say thank you. I am here because of you. And this is so important because souls are going to be the greatest thing up there. I, can, I can't wait to talk to the guys that led me to the Lord and had input in my life even before I came to the Lord. 
The earliest time I remember looking for church was at five years old. But for five years, I went to churches, and there had to be other people that it had impact in my life. I will look forward to going up and saying thank you to each and every one of them. And who knows how many people will say thank you to us. This is one thing I keep sharing with us, because each one of us has a place where we have planted a seed, we have watered a seed, we have been kind to somebody, and that was a watering of the seed. And there will be people that are going to say, you didn't know what you did, but I'm here because of the nice word you said about, about God. You invited me to church, and it at least made me think. Or you quoted a verse, or you, were, you had a smile. Who knows what exactly will be the case. Or you prayed for me. All these names we have on our list that we pray for, every time we pray for them, that's one more little notch. If they get saved, one more little notch that you have a part in. How often do we water down the importance of prayer? You know, and this is sad because we, the saying, we, you know, saying that's out there, I've tried everything else, I should pray, should be something that's not in our mindset. Our, our thing is, I've prayed, now I'm going to try everything that I can try. Because God doesn't want us just sitting back, but he does want us praying. God, we need to see this happen, and I'm, until, you t- until you move, I'm going to do everything I can and watch you move. But we need to be including him from the very beginning of all of our desires and our thoughts. Because ultimately prayer is our strongest weapon that we have for the kingdom. And the rest of it, when we're praying, he'll give us the opportunities. He'll open our mouth. He'll fill our mouth. He'll, he'll fill us with the spirit so that we're acting and doing the things that we need to do and get direction. It is wonderful when you do something, and sometimes you're going, I don't know why I'm doing this. I have no idea why, why this is going on. And then all of a sudden, God gives you that opportunity. You shared the other day, making that per- present for somebody that yeah. was the perfect president for that person, not knowing who it was. There's been times I've been talking to somebody, not knowing that I was even going, not even planning to do any witnessing and then end up witnessing to them. You know, just because open and and setting up and just saying, I'm going to step forward. And God uses us. When we're open to him, he'll use us. He'll have us say something, do something, um, whatever it might take, just be something (laughs) that somebody is going to be drawn toward. And we don't know anything about how God is using our life. I've heard so many people, well, I've just been so worthless. I've never done anything in my life. And you go, you've touched people. People have looked at your life. They've seen the way you live. You have, you have spoken kind words to people that have encouraged them. And we're going to find out, if, we're, if we are a Christian, we have touched more people than we are ever aware of. Because if we're hooked into Jesus Christ and we are part of the vine, then we produce fruit. Even if we don't see it, we produce fruit. Otherwise, we are not hooked into the vine. Uh, if you have a plant and it's hooked into a live root, it will produce something. At the very least, it produces leaves. All right? And should produce fruit. If we are hooked into Jesus as we are supposed to be, he is the vine, we are the branches, we will produce fruit. We may not see it all the time, but we will produce fruit. And that's where we're going to end here. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for your loving kindness that you care for us, Lord, that you want to show us your love. 
Help us, Lord, to be witnesses. Help us learn to show grace to people and to be able to witness and open our mouths at the right time. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Listening, friends, where will you be when you die? We ask this question of a lot of people oftentimes, and the biggest answer we'll get is, I hope I will be in heaven. If hope is your answer, you don't know God, and this is a problem. We all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The wages of the sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. If you do not know for sure that you're going to go into heaven, please, today, make your decision to follow him. It is simply just ask him, Lord, I am a sinner. Please come into my life and save me and make him your Lord. If you said that prayer, let us know so that we can send you a new believers packet. You can contact us at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or even pastor at chloridebaptistchurch.com or you can just send us a regular letter at Chloride Baptist Church, P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona, 86431. Thank you very much for listening and have a wonderful day.